Welcome to Three Films in a Podcast, the show where Destiny brought together three friends to enhance each other's cinematic journey by watching three new movies in a series of themed rounds. There is no claim of ownership on any film footage used in this episode, as all film footage is owned in its entirety by the copyright holders. And just like every car in Too Fast, Too Furious, this podcast contains spoilers. Enjoy! Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Three Films and a Podcast. My name is Ben Lawhorn. I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and I am joined, as always, by Tyler Beck. That's right, and I'm also in Salt Lake City, South Salt Lake, if we're being uh, very specific, but back in the old stomping grounds here. It's a lot of fun. Nice. I like it. Uh, Also, Matt Weiler's here. If you aren't watching, you should be because he looks very sharp, very dapper. Matt, thank you for being here. City of Trees. City of trees. Uh, trees, baby. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Steven, is Dallas classified as a city of trees? Not to jump on your introduction too much, but just curious. Well, I noticed that. that Fort Worth. So oh, Dallas right. is known as the city of uh cancer, poverty, and uh <laughs> teams. Wow. Known. Okay. Yeah, take take that, Tyler. I'll take okay, my bad. My bad. In your Sorry face. I brought it up. <laughs> uh, for those of you new to the show, uh, welcome to the movie club. For those of you that are returning, welcome back to the movie club. I realized in the intro I said welcome back to. So if this is your first time, welcome. But welcome. also, yeah, please come back. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you can tell your friends. Uh, we're on social media everywhere at Three Films Pod, or you can go to our website, threefilmspod.com, merch, patron. All of our socials are there. Every episode, everything you need and definitely don't need is on our website. So feel free to go check it out. Before we get into this week's movie, I would like to introduce our very special guest tonight. Steven is joining us. He's from the Boozy Bracketology. Let me start that over. I apologize. Steven is from the Boozy Bracketology podcast and the Pub Trivia Experience podcast. Steven, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hey, Steven. Hey, great to be here. I, I came in on a really good film. I'm very passionate about it. So uh, as oh, soon I, as like this awesome. I wanted to grab it. Cool. I'm nice. I'm so excited. Um, it's also nice to have someone that's excited about the movie. It's like already feels like, hey, this discussion is going to be great. Um, do you want to let people know about the podcast and uh, you know what you guys do and where they can find you guys? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I am a guest on two podcasts. Uh, Pub Trivia Experience, which is pretty much just what it sounds like. Uh, mm-hmm. We get together, we play trivia games, we drink. So as the questions get harder and harder throughout the night, we get sillier and dumber. <laughs> um, so usually yeah, we just like me. Rules and then I'll piss it all away in the final Jeopardy question, which Perfect. we get obviously wrong. So <laughs> a lot of fun. If you want to um, start the day feeling kind of like you're with us and then think we're complete idiots you never want to hang out with again, I would recommend that one. <laughs> More commonly, you can find me on our sister podcast called Boozy Bracketology. That's where we take uh, you know, everything from the best sports film to what else have we done? Best breakfast cereals. We put them in a bracket, usually about 64, and we use our completely subjective, non-measured ways of picking them in order to come with the ultimate correct answer every single time. Unless nice. they disagree with me in the final one, and then we fucked it up completely, and I hate it. <laughs> this means I have to ask though, like, what is your favorite breakfast cereal? What What's your number one? Uh, well, I'm not going to give away the winner there. Okay, uh, all right. Personally, it's corn pops. I will tell you on that bracket, shredded frosted mini wheats does surprisingly well. Like wow. it goes way deeper than you think it would. Yeah. Okay. I mean, 
even being on there is a surprise to me. So yeah, yeah. it got a lot further than I thought. That is a sneaky good cereal. I'm still a child of my cereal. If it has a cartoon on the box, I'm on board. Yeah. I'm I'm a tricks guy through and through. If there's no Ooh. mascot or cartoon, it's not for me. Not quite yet. Crunch um, berries, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah, so yeah, check out. Old, old enough on the podcast that any cereal that could really help you with a smooth bowel movement kind of got a boost that you wouldn't expect. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, yeah, uh, again, we're very happy to have you here. Everyone check out their pods. Um, they're both super fun. We we, we were just talking earlier about the, uh, the pub trivia experience. Um, it's, I don't know, it's super fun. It's cool to feel like you're there and answer the questions and realize how much stuff you don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know? But yeah. it's also fun when you're listening and like kind of yelling the question, the answer in your head. Like, I know this totally. one, I know this one. But I love pub whole- trivia. And one thing that was interesting was like, you don't realize how much you rely on your team when you do those mm, things, mm-hmm, you know, because mm-hmm. there was like the first three questions of the episodes I listened to. I was like, oh, I know all this. I would crush these guys. And I didn't know a single one after that. Oh, you really need your team there. So going solo is a is a is a trip. Yeah. yeah. You're going to watch out with Pug Trivia because you go with a team like three weeks in a row and you're like the top number one every time. Yeah. And then you get like a different set of friends you go out with the fourth time and you realize you didn't know a single answer. <laughs> <laughs> I did not what con- is the team name on the office, Ben? This is really good Pub Trivia right here. What is their team name? On the office? The, Kev- the Kevin and Kelly team name? Oh, when they- I, doesn't matter. I, I do not know Roll that the one. Clip. Line jib is correct. For the Einsteins. <laughs> Roll, roll the clip though <laughs> now let's get into this week's episode now um, let's get serious right let's get super no more fun now we're talking yeah. black and white japanese yeah. cinema it's gonna no. be hell from here on out <laughs> yeah. he says as he takes another drink of whiskey hang on to your butts <laughs> um yeah so this week we are in the middle of our akira kurosawa round um with the again overall theme being trying to explore some new things to us we have chosen three movies that i think were pretty much new watches to all of us uh last week we talked about seven samurai we're doing throne of blood this week and next week we'll be going over yojimbo um but throne of blood for people who don't know is basically kurosawa's take on macbeth so spoiler alert if you haven't read macbeth from 1623 we're gonna ruin it for you i know we put a spoiler warning at the beginning but you know now you know he dies uh so yeah uh anyway like kurosawa he was like a big fan of macbeth tell me that a person dies at the end of a shakespeare play i know right (laughs) i think this is the only one that happens Don't don't fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure this is the only one where someone dies. But yeah, Kurosawa had wanted to do this for a while, apparently. And then he found out about Orson Welles doing it. So he put it put it off for a little bit, um, but then finally came back to it and kind of put his own spin on it, which we'll get into later on. Um, some of the yeah, like the Japanese, like acting techniques, the theatrical, the cinema, all of it, and just kind of changed the story a little bit as well. But um, I am very glad that we got to watch this. Uh, recently, the Joel Cohen—I would say the Cohen brothers, but just Joel Cohen—put out the tragedy of Macbeth uh, with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, which was—I had a great time with it. Um, it's definitely like an interesting take on the story, so it was cool to kind of watch these back to back and see how they compare. This one had a lot yeah. more of like the war and the violence and the fighting, um, not nearly as much as the 2015 Macbeth with uh, Michael or yeah Fassbender. 
that one was kind of intense but i getting back to this one I, i'm kind of curious i think this was everyone's at least on on the pod for us it's our first watch steven have had you seen this before what was your take on the movie did you enjoy it like yeah tell us what your thoughts were on throne of blood yeah throne of blood is actually an old friend of mine i'm seeing it um so i do know it well um it's not my favorite kurosawa film it's top three it's it's, it kind of rotates around there um it's a really good example of a kurosawa film with the the uses of the deep focus the extreme shadows the things that he's kind of famous for Mm -hmm. i also think it really encapsulates kurosawa a lot of his films uh, kind of him processing the fact that his country has just lost a rather significant war in a way yeah. that was inconceivable to him in his childhood. It's and you can tell that that's what attracts him to Macbeth. Uh, that's For the sure. part he's focusing on. And yeah, I, <laughs> and I, I mean, thing that came across really well in this. Obviously, he sent it back. I think to. I think Macbeth is about 11th century Scotland and this one was about 16th century Japan, but it was like you said, just kind of a reflection of what the country was dealing with at the time. I think as with all of his movies that I've seen, at least it was told beautifully, like it looked great. Um, but yeah, Matt, what about you? Is this your first throne of blood watch? <clears throat> it was. And uh, I mean, Macbeth is one of my favorite Shakespeare stories. Macbeth is just like such a cool character. Like, I remember reading that for the first time and being like, man, like this dude is this dude's like so cool. <laughs> and it's kind of like it's like the first Breaking Bad story. Right. Like, oh, yeah, this is this is the origin of Breaking Bad. This guy that you're like kind of rooting for is just like going down this this path. And like you're still conflicted about rooting for him. Like everything he's doing is bad. But you're also like, I want this guy to succeed. <laughs> um but then you also like you're also like you want him to pay as well so it's 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 an interesting thing it's it's cool that uh shakespeare stories can just be adapted you know over and over again and they're always relevant and they're always interesting um but yeah i mean this one as i said in my letterboxd review any any movie that i'm seeing Toshiro Mifune in is my favorite Toshiro Mifune movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's just so good in everything um, that he's in, but this has to be my favorite Macbeth adaptation that I've seen. Yeah. Was, um... Yeah. I echo that sentiment about Toshiro. Um, I think he was the overall winner of the Apollonia award from uh, the seven samurai episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just fantastic before I get into my experience with uh, <clears throat> Throne of Blood. I just want you guys to know how dumb I am for a second. When Stephen was talking about how uh, Kurosawa makes movies dealing with the loss of the war, I was like, "Wait a minute! This is what it looked like in 1950s Japan." <laughs> like for a second, I thought Throne of Blood took place in that time period. So I just wanted you guys to know that, so you know what's going on up here. It's it's a mess <laughs> up here. Um, but no, this was my first time seeing uh, Throne of Blood. It's my second overall experience with Kurosawa as a whole. My first being Seven Samurai in the first round of this uh, Kurosawa round. And um, so far, Throne of Blood is my favorite. I did enjoy Seven Samurai, but I wrote this in Letterboxd. I think tonally, Throne of Blood is what I was expecting from Seven Samurai, mm. if that makes any sense. I was, I was expecting in Seven Samurai to find like a heavier weightier like a more serious story not that you know bandits 
robbing a village blind and war and murder isn't dark and heavy, but I think, you know what I mean? Like the atmosphere, the cinematography, and just like the feet, the overall feel and tone of the movie is yeah. what I was expecting of seven samurai. And so getting that, getting like what I expected out of throne of blood helps me like go back and retroactively appreciate seven samurai more if that makes any sense it like took the burden of expectation away from seven samurai for me and i because because seven samurai was the one i'd always heard of right like Mm -hmm. everyone when you when when people tell you about kurosawa it's like oh you've got to see seven samurai and it's great but i actually would argue that maybe you would you should see this one first because it's a little more what you would expect from like a black and white samurai film like Mm -hmm. Even like the costumes, like, you know, it's more ornate samurai costumes because they're wealthy samurai, right? Like they're the samurai that me as an ignorant white person thinks of, you know what I mean? And so I think I I kind of wish I would have watched Throne of Blood first because I think it would have helped me appreciate Seven Samurai more. Um, And, 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 you know, Macbeth is more uh, it's a story that we all know. So it's not like you're trying to figure out what's you know, you're watching Macbeth so you can get past that for me Mm -hmm. anyways. Um, and I just loved it, man. The cinematography in this movie just blew me away. There's a few shots that are just burned into my brain. Um, and yeah. Toshiro Mufune is quickly going up the charts and one of my favorites to see on screen. The guy's just incredible. It seems like he's always hitting like he's great. I love Mufune. Um, yeah, this was also a first watch for me. I mean, speaking of the samurai, like I could not get enough of those like flags coming up their back yeah. they're walking around with is like just all man, that of it, was so man. cool like yeah i loved it yeah exactly <laughs> which is apparently I, I read somewhere that's like a, a symbol for evil or whatever so like it was kind of just telling us that the whole time and the other the other guy i forget his name he had a, a rabbit which was like for fertility or something like that i don't know exactly oh, but interesting it was really cool to see those, but yeah, I mean, I had a really good time with this. Like I said, I, I watched this, I believe the day after, or maybe two days after watching the tragedy of Macbeth. So I kind of went in, you know, with that Cohen, you know, like very slow, just like, and just like a literal translation of the, of the book, of the play essentially, you know, like word for word. And I didn't know exactly what I was getting into with this, but I loved it. I love how he kind of changed it a little bit, made it very specific to Japan um obviously like the ending has changed a little bit but we still have like the influence of lady Macbeth and all that coming into it um and yeah i I think you know one of the things i kind of wanted to get into like we've talked about a little bit of kurosawa style but with this one um kurosawa really like put in this theater style of acting sorry stuttering here um called the no style of drama um it's that and kabuki are basically like the two popular most popular ones in japan and he went with the no style um i'm just going to kind of read this because i thought it was super interesting i guess no makes use of masks um and the evil spirit is often seen uh in this movie in different parts of the uh film like wearing faces they did the makeup kind of like a mask um which i thought was kind of cool we saw the three ghosts that come out at one point you know to kind of warn him about what's coming on Apparently those three men were very like famous no actors who asked Kurosawa if they could be in one of his movies and he put them in this role. So they really performed that in that same style, which is like, I'm not like educated on this really at all, but like from my limited research, like it's a very kind of slow and methodical style of acting. Um, I watched some stuff about it. It's like, it was really cool to watch. Uh, but I think it was such a choice to put this into this film. I mean, cause Macbeth is already such an old story 
but then you you know you infuse it with this old style of acting um you know some of the other like i don't know i guess kind of hallmarks of it like the score like no theater uses just a flute and a drum and we got a lot of that it was all kind of jarring i don't know how you guys felt about it but like some of in here just like oh my god like that it just like came out of nowhere It was kind of cool to see that like that's he was keeping true to all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And one of the things I liked in the making of is uh, interviewer was talking to Kurosawa and, you know, he's like, he's like, we'll have tourists that come over and go to a no film and they'll or uh, no play and they'll fall asleep. And Kurosawa just kind of laughed about it. He just kind of shrugged it off. You know, he's like, uh, I mean, the quote says, if you can get someone who can perform it perfectly, it can be gripping and swift, which I think is true. If you get anyone doing anything well, I think you can like be really invested into it. I think the, you know, risk is if no, if they don't do it well, you're going to lose the audience. But I, my opinion is it kind of paid off in this. I think it really added to the style. Um, all that to say, I was really just kind of like impressed by his confidence in doing this. Plus, you know, building the sets on Mount Fuji so that like we, they did some studio stuff, but like the, the castle, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. What they were able to pull off, but it was beautiful there. I think that's something that we've seen in seven samurai and his other films. Like he really knows how to make a set and make it feel like you're there. Um, and then, yeah, last thing, I guess Kurosawa planned to only produce the film and hand over the reins to a different director. I think we talked about that a little bit with uh, Miyazaki. Like he's done that, I believe a couple of times where he was like retired, you know, quote unquote. And then he's like, all right, well, I'll direct it now. You know, it's like, and, and I mean, they're always great. And I think that's the same with Kurosawa. So I was kind of curious. Um, I mean, that's just a long tangent, but kind of how that worked for you, like infusing that no style, which was very slow and methodical into this story. And then it also just made me wonder like, what kind of, like who are the directors today? Like who's the equivalent today that can do that? Just be like, you know what? I'm going to put my own kind of spin on this. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the studio will trust them. I think it's getting harder and harder, you know, especially for a theater release for that to happen. I think we do have directors that are allowed to do it. And I just thought it might be kind of a fun exercise to kind of think about like who are our modern day Kurosawa's in terms of, you know, being able to be creative, but also bring in the audience. So Stephen, with everything I just said, I'm going to throw it to you <laughs> for anything you want to say. Um, yeah, there's a little things there. Um, so the no theater. Uh, yeah, it's it's my understanding as a, you know, guy that's never been to Japan and is completely white. It, it's very much sort of like a hula dance where mm. very, very small movements are yeah. a lot. And Kurosawa uses it incredibly well here because not yeah. everyone's doing no theater all the time mm-hmm. typically it's the spirits or lady macbeth yes. that are doing the no theater and it gives them that otherworldly quality because they're moving in a way that the rest of the characters aren't and particularly like with lady macbeth when we first meet her she's so still and mm. so unemotional up until the point that you know the lord gets killed and then bam Suddenly, she's moving like a human. She's moving. <laughs> yes. She's doing other things, and like it's just an explosion of energy, and you can really see how it makes her feel so like a spider in the previous scenes. It really mm-hmm. back and realize that was just an act she's putting on to seduce and almost hypnotize her husband into doing the things she wants. And it, it, it's it's really really smart how Kurosawa really does sort of Scotch tape Japanese mythology and Japanese techniques. Into what's a pretty Western movie. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. Shakespeare. It's part of the Western canon. There's a reason why most of 
Kurosawa's films get remade in the U.S. as Westerns, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Seven Very Samurai, the Magnificent Seven, oh, yeah. and then eventually, you know, A Bug's Life. Hey, who wanted the poo-poo platter? But it, it it has that very weird quality of both looking back and looking forward at how these two things are at attention with each other. And it's represented through that no style of acting given to certain characters in certain moments that just makes them feel like they're different than mm-hmm. the real world that's moving on from that. And, and I think that's just one of the incredibly smart things about this film, how he's using these techniques not because they're pretty or they're traditional, but because he's saying something with them. Yeah, I agree. I think we get a lot of, you know, those specific people that are doing the no acting a lot, even just like the harsh white lighting on them, you know, like when it yeah. comes across the ghost in the forest, all that kind of stuff. And like I said, the other three ghosts, man, Lady Macbeth. And I know it's not her character's name, but she was so good in this. Like she, freaked me out in the best way though it's like oh <laughs> yeah. man this person yeah. is so good but no i think that's yeah all those are super solid points do you feel like there are any uh directors today that kind of get the leeway that kurosawa had back then so when you were telling that story uh i remember there's a story of when he was making the seventh samurai twice he ran out of money and they had to mm. shut down production and kurosawa went on fishing trips both times <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> waited until because the studio had sunk so much money in that time. He knew they were going to eventually fork out. He was going to wait until they realized they couldn't leave a half finished film. <laughs> I I cannot imagine a, a studio doing it this day. You know, no. just think about what happened with that terrible. No matter what cut you look at, Justice League movie. <laughs> you know, a studio yeah. was willing to sink a, a couple hundred million dollars in. A couple hundred million dollars for rewrite, and then still replace the guy and put in a hundred million dollars more, yeah. and then cut out a third of the viewing area, and then cut out. <laughs> like, the yeah, I, I don't know, like any director that has that much clout now, because it's yeah. so much. If you're going to make a big budget film like this, it, it's the studio that's in charge. Uh, you know, a director might get a little input on the script; they might be able to make it a little bit funnier, a little more dark, but. At the end of the day, a film that's supposed to be a tentpole in a major Hollywood studio film, it's just not going to happen anymore. The, the, the yeah. system is set up to not allow that. If, I uh, think, yeah, yeah it's it, totally it fair. I think. Like a, you know, $100,000 independent produced, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a Kevin Smith, maybe, because he basically has the same model as, you know, yeah. he, he basically has the same model as the Christian film industry where, he makes cheap films to a very mm-hmm. small but extremely dedicated audience so he can get away with that. And that's probably the only way you could get that kind of control in a movie these days is to follow that model. You know, there's a million fine-looking women in the world, dude, but they don't all bring you lasagna at work. Most of them just cheat on you. That that's makes, a funny, funny yeah. comparison. Although, so I had a different answer written down, but I might augment it a little bit. I might, I might say that uh, Denis Villeneuve is starting to get that sort of clout. Uh, because I mean, he essentially made Dune happen. I mean, I have very limited like back end Hollywood knowledge, but I just know that, you know, he had full control over when I say no, I, I feel like I know that he had <laughs> full control over like how that, how that movie was put together. It was, it was his movie. It was very much, uh, an, uh, you know, an auteur project and very much fits what he wanted to do. And 
he was able to make Dune 2 happen by basically saying, like, you have to just give me full control. And mm-hmm. I mean, those are not cheap movies. Um, and I was personally a big fan of the first installment of the what I didn't realize was going to be a pop, probably <laughs> trilogy. I'll never forget, like when it was over, I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> Like I was starting to do the math in my head. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to end like with an ending, like they're setting up a thing here. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, so I'm yeah, I would probably say it's early to tell. Maybe it's just because he's still hot and he hasn't messed up yet. But Denis Villeneuve seems to have that sort of clout with the studio. them just giving him the reins and letting him do what he wants. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I see that for sure. I think, you know, Steven, you're talking about like the big studios. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth, though, because on my deathbed, I'm still going to say I wish I could have seen Edgar Wright's Ant-Man, you know, and he felt yeah. like he was like yeah. batting a thousand at that point. But they're just like, cool, we'll replace you, whatever. It's like, what are you kidding me? You know, and to a lesser extent, Lord and Miller was solo like they weren't obviously on Kurosawa level, but they had been batting a thousand as well with like the jump street movies and all this kind of stuff. And obviously they brought in Ron Howard, but I do think there's a, not necessarily a fine line, but the studios just go either way. It's like, you're replaceable. We can do whatever. Or like, yeah, Denny do whatever you want. Like, it's totally fine. Like, we'll, I don't know. We'll, we'll cater to this. Matt, what about you? So uh, people who are familiar with the pod know that star Wars is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, I'm, just just to before I get into this, I have to state and put it on record. I'm a fan of the sequel trilogy. I like them, um, but I feel like there's two there's two answers here. I feel like uh, on one hand, they J.J. Abrams is one of those people they pull in to kind of do his J.J. thing, mm-hmm. which, in my opinion, didn't didn't translate super well to Star Wars. Um, I felt like J.J. loves Star Wars and then he did like J.J. things to star wars yeah whereas when they gave the keys over to john favreau who i feel like also has sort of that um he's he's like got a really great resume that you know studios trust with i feel like he was able to take sort of a different approach and not not make it as much favreau as much as you know make it more more about star wars and so i feel like both of those whether whether they succeed in doing their own thing or not um i feel like are sort of that way people yeah. pull them in because they trust them i mean if you're the guy that made swingers you get full reign on everything <laughs> right i mean once you make that you're good Done. to go it's only getting money baby <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i was thinking about this too like my first answer was just kind of straightforward of like tarantino i feel like he at this point kind of has the reign to make whatever he wants and he has like the dedicated fan base that's gonna show up and see it so i think he kind of you know crosses that but even just as we were talking right now, I thought it was kind of interesting um, with James Gunn because, you know, when he got fired and they were trying to find directors for uh, Guardians 3, it felt like a lot of the directors were like, no, like, we're not going to do that. Like, that's that's his thing. Like, we're not going to step into this or whatever, which I thought was kind of interesting because I wonder if like any directors back then, I feel like they would have done that for Kurosawa. Like, I'm not stepping into that, man. Like, that's yeah. that's his thing. Like, you, you know, you you hire him back or you pay him, whatever. Uh, and I know, I mean, we're comparing all these people to 
just one of the greatest directors of all time. So yeah. please don't think that like I'm saying Lord and Miller are as good as Kurosawa. We're just, you know, mm-hmm. we're just nope. you heard it here first here. folks, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Let us know what of, you think in the comments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's better. Um, <laughs> 22 jump street or seven samurai. What's the better movie? Uh, <laughs> it's a toss up, you know, you Hold never know. Yeah. But the, we're gonna have a bracketology of the Lord Miller versus Kurosawa. We'll see what wins on that one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought the James Gunn thing was kind of interesting. So like, there's a lot of people who just, I think, again, like, no, whatever. But through Twitter, it's like, I feel like a lot of people turned that down because they didn't want to step on his toes there. And, you know, now he's back on it and I'm super excited for it. But yeah, I think all those are great. Um, yeah, to speak to the no style i think it's super cool um steven i think you put it perfectly uh, and a lot more succinctly than i did but just everybody wasn't doing it but the people that were it was very intentional just to kind of give them kind of this like i don't know if it's like ethereal or just kind of like otherworldly um perspective or whatever for the audience like oh this person's different than everybody else i want to pay attention to what they're doing and i think it was used wonderfully along those lines uh we often will get asked on here, like what movies we're covering. And we kind of have to give like a little bit of a pitch about that, but like, here's the movie we're picking. And some people might ask why, like, why did you go with this one? This one for me was just like, it was the number one, like Kurosawa that I hadn't seen that I really wanted to, uh, because Tyler took seven samurai for his pick. So it's like, okay, well I want to see throne of blood. I want to see him do the Macbeth story. So that's why I picked it. But we like to kind of, do a thing here where if you could show somebody a scene or a moment in the movie to sell them on throne of blood, what would you show them and see what I'm going to throw to you first? Yeah, I went back and forth a lot on uh, what I was going to pick here, mostly because one my, the scene that immediately to me, one of you had chosen and thrown on the note before I got there. So <laughs> a little aggravation there, but um, I think the one that I found uh, ended up landing on was the dinner scene where Mickey doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I love the way we play that scene, not only because it's got these, uh, when we're focusing on, I'm just going to call him Macbeth because I would mutilate his name. Otherwise, when we're focusing on Macbeth, we have these very tight, quick shots mm-hmm. of him. We're basically him. We see him drink his face, see him drink his face. And then when we go and cut to anyone else, particularly Lady Macbeth, we have these longer shots, both in terms of how wide they are and how long they run. And it kind of puts us in his mental state so that the point when Mickey Spirit shows up there, mm. not only is it creepy as hell, because we're seeing it in a long shot that just kind of slowly pans over. And we got this guy that's a little overexposed, so he's brighter than the rest of the room. Yeah. By a lot. But also, uh, it does a thing that Tashira, uh, that he does throughout this movie. Um, he lets us see a thing and then he gives us the explanation later. Mm. So when we see Mickey spirit, we have been seeing these close up quick shots of Macbeth drinking. Like when Mrs. Macbeth goes off and says, Oh, he's just drunk. Don't worry about it. Yeah. She might be placating people, but he might be drunk. Right. Yeah. That, that's totally fitting with the character we know. And then that scene ends when the assassin comes in and he says, I have Mickey's head. Mm. That's only afterwards that we get this confirmation. And it does this thing this film does very well, where we watch something, we watch something, and then we get the answer at the end, and we have to reevaluate everything we've just seen. Yeah. And it lets us re-experience this film and really think and digest what we just saw. It's 
one of the reasons why this is probably one of the smartest films, which is saying something from a very smart director, but it has us really think about what we saw. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I, I think that's just a brilliant scene. And I think that's a very good example of that technique that we see throughout. Totally. And it's a really good, really good showcase of the way that uh, Mufune plays his roles. Like he's so animated, like he can do so much with just his face that yeah. tells you what's going on. And just the way that his physical presence in the movie is always just so uh, overwhelming. And this is a perfect example of that in this scene. So that's a solid pick. Very solid scene. Um, acknowledge. So while acknowledging that there are many objectively better scenes to choose from, like the one that Steven just presented, I'm going to say the scene when we first meet Asaji, uh, that's uh, Lady Macbeth is what we've mm-hmm. been calling here in the, in the podcast. Uh, with the first time we see her at the North castle and, and honestly I'm picking this whole scene just for the shot where we first see her, where she's sitting yeah. in the throne room. Uh, she's bathed in light. There's tons of shadow. It's just a really beautifully composed shot. And uh, I, that shot has just been burned into my brain since we saw it. And so for me, it, it's just one of those, you know, take it out of the TV and put it on your wall sorts of shots. And that's yeah. the kind of stuff that I personally love. So I think I would show that just to show like, this is the type of like beautiful cinematography that you're going to get out of this. It doesn't really do anything. I mean, you, you kind of get the setup of what you're going to see uh, with, you know, the, the, uh, the plan to, to murder the King. And you kind of see like the influences on uh Wasiju or Macbeth, I guess interchangeably, we could call them either one. <laughs> so you kind of get a setup for what the movie's about. It's not too spoilery. And it's just like, you just get to see that beautiful shot. So um, that's that's probably how I would go here. I think she's a, a solid choice. Honestly, anything. I think another great scene with her that I loved is um, when she's like washing her hands, you know, but like phantomly, like there's no water. And he's yeah. like, oh, it was so good. Mm-hmm. And just her like when she's kind of starting to lose it and just, I don't know, such powerful acting between the two of them. I thought they played off each other really, really well. Um, Matt, what is your elevator pitch scene? I mean, I, I mean, I got to endorse Steven's choice. I mean, that's, yeah. that was my favorite scene in the movie. Um, the, the, the composition of it reminded me of like the old Japanese, a lot of graphic design comes from old Japanese illustrations. And th- that's like sort of the beginnings of a lot of different graphic design movements. And some of the, just like the images, the, the stills from that scene are just so cool. Yeah. Um, and with the costuming and, and, Everything was really cool. But in the spirit of doing something different, Toshiro Mufune is like the full package. He can do all of it. But I want to highlight the scene when him and Miki are before the Lord and and they fulfill the prophecy of him becoming, you know, the head of of the one castle and he sends Miki to the other castle. And after they turn around and are marching away the face acting of both of them, but especially Toshiro is like insane. Like he's yeah. like trying to keep his cool, but like his eyes are like wild and it's just like <laughs> so yeah. cool. It's so good. Yeah. Once he like, you know, gives them the new title, you kind of see the reaction like, Oh my God, everything <laughs> which he said is true. Now it's like, yeah, that scene. And honestly, just like the cinematography of like following them, like walking down that, like, you know, aisle way basically yeah. like, Oh, mm-hmm. it was so well done. That's the other thing with this. It's like, we talked about a seven samurai and with a lot of directors, but I love the cinematography in this, like using the natural fog and all that kind of stuff was just mm-hmm. like, 
there's so many scenes in here that again i think you could pluck out and just like hang on the wall like it's it's so beautiful i was Um, wondering the whole time i'm like did they have fog machines at this time like how did they just nail this fog every like they like that's just the 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 challenge of planning your shoots around when there's going to be fog i mean i'm sure they know the season i'm sure they know the time of day and everything but like you can't count on the weather and like you have budgets and you have scheduling, you have planning, you have, you know what I mean? Like to, to wrangle everything together and set it up so you can just shoot in fog. Like that's just, that's crazy to me. (laughs) And all, as I understand again, like watching the making of thing, like all fairly practical, like 90% of it, like they did some studio stuff. Like they did actually shoot in the forest at Mount Fuji, but they also, you know, kind of built a set there for some of the closer things. But a lot, I think almost every one of those fog shots is just like, practical like just it's like actually happening it's like it's amazing what he was able to capture there um but speaking of amazing i'm gonna go with my elevator scene um but i, I don't know steven maybe this is the one that you were gonna pick i'm sorry to take it away from you but please add on when i'm done if this was it but that death scene was just fucking amazing <laughs> like it yeah. was it was so good like the traditional Macbeth story you know, his head gets cut off and you know, that's how that all plays out. But this one, they, I mean, they go with arrows and oh my Boy, God, like <laughs> talk about like Mifune just being everything. Like he commands that scene. There's, I mean, so much trivia about it, real arrows, like actual archers, you know, they were, you know, kind of hollowed out and stuff like that. But I mean, actually kind of shooting them up there than the ones that hit his, um armor i guess they kind of basically had like tacks at the end of it so that they could like stick in without hurting him and mm. just i mean some of the technique he did of like he would kind of flail his arms to basically let the archers know which way he was going that kind of a thing mm. like it was all like kind of nuts to see all this and just to see even without all that behind the scenes stuff just to watch it like unfurl on screen in front of us was like man this is such a powerful scene it's so cool to see this guy who's like, he's finally crumbling, you know, basically like everyone's yeah. turning against him and they're like, no, we're not going to like die for you. Mm-hmm. Like these people are coming to attack us. Like, no, they just want you. Like we can, we can take care of this ourselves. So, um, yeah, yeah I thought it was your just... heart out Tom Cruise. I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I knew they were like real arrows, but you know, like I thought maybe they were just like a few feet away. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's, I think some of them were on like strings and stuff, but they were still just like being shot. Like there's a cool shot in the um, behind the scenes with like, there's like eight archers lined up basically 10 feet or so off of like where Mifune is and just like fully pulled back and ready to go. So like, you know, they weren't (laughs) shooting from a hundred feet, but they were still like right there just actually shooting these like, Oh dude, that would like freak me out. Uh, Steven, was this the scene that you originally had wanted to pick and talk about? Yeah, yeah, that was one I would have picked. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, couple of things I'll, I'll tack on real quick. Yeah, please. Um, that's one of to tie what we've been talking together. That's also one of those fog scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll notice we never get a shot of any of the archers in the castle, like arcing an arrow or shooting at Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we see when we do get the very first shot is just people in fog we've actually obscured the archers, so it's not individuals taking down this lord it's yeah the force of nature that's just rolled in that he's just gone to this place where this is just what happens to these kinds of people that if you're yeah. going to rise up and take power through blood if you're going to have a 
throne of blood, mm-hmm. you're going to make a throne of blood. And right. it's just an inevitable force. And it does such a good job of shooting that. And yeah, it, it's Toshiro Mifune is one of those people that just somehow has complete control over every inch of his body. Uh, I mean, his, his his mustache is doing a lot of the work. To be fair. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Space. But he is just, you know, it's basically him and Jim Carrey at his prime. They're probably the two yeah. people yeah. who have been most in control of their bodies in the history of humanity. And they both used it great. Tashiro mm-hmm. Mifune is amazing in this. And yeah, he's basically got little blocks of wood under his shirt and an archer behind the camera. <laughs> he's just taking shots. It's it's wow. it's a miracle. He's he survived it. Really? Um, yeah. He's gonna lose an eye. But yeah, <laughs> that, that seems really amazing. And it does that thing where the guy gets hit by an arrow. He doesn't go down instantly, mm-hmm. and you don't sit around thinking, "Oh come on, how many arrows?" It's not Boromir at the end of the Fellowship of the Rings. <laughs> so you watch him in the in the heart twelve times before he goes down. <laughs> come on, Peter Jackson. No, no, it, it's an incredible scene. We feel his agony, and we also get the catharsis of him dying. Like we're upset he's dead because he's actually kind of a badass, and we like him. Yeah, he needs to die because. That's the nature of what he's created. Well, yeah. I'm glad you say that. Like, we don't like we're sad that he dies because in all reality, like none of at least in this adaptation of the story, like none of those decisions he made were actually his own decisions. Really? He was, mm-hmm. he was like pushed to do it by these spirits and by Lady Macbeth. And that's why I wanted to show the scene that I showed. So you can see like this guy, like he's not, this isn't his nature to be this ambitious or to do this overthrow. Like he's, he's cognizant of the fact that I think it's he that says uh, the King that he's going to overthrow was himself put in power because he killed the King before him. So like he knew, like it it seemed like he knew that this was going to happen to him and he was pushed to do it by these outside influences. And I, I thought that was like one of the most compelling parts about his character, because you're right. Like, you do want him to succeed. You know, he's doomed not only just because of the story of, we know the story of Macbeth, but just like, you know, you it, like you said, when you, you take the throne by blood, you leave the throne in blood. So it's just, it, it is, it was really fun to watch it play out. And I, I did really appreciate it about this telling of the story of Macbeth. For sure. Yeah. I think, you know, we saw his prophecy get fulfilled and then I think that just starts to drive him crazy because, you know, his friends, kids are going to take the throne you know it's like all right well i know how to solve that problem <laughs> like is there any kids left and you know all that kind of so he just gets to watch yeah the kind of power go to his head and all that kind of stuff like the fog is a great point steven because we see it at the beginning of the film too when they're in um also i really like the literal translation of this movie the spider's web castle which i thought was kind of mm-hmm. cool but uh they're in this forest and they're riding through and they just like get you know they're getting nowhere they run into the witch and then suddenly like the fog clears after that. And they know where they're going. Then I do think that's kind of representative of like, he's like kind of lost doesn't know what's happening. And now he has like a goal. It's like, okay, things are clear now. I know what I'm doing. And then mm. at the end, like you said, the fog coming back in is like, I think his judgment's getting clouded and how he's handling everything. And we get to see kind of a literal translation of it. But I, I, yeah, all these scenes are great. This whole movie again, like it's hard to pick a bad scene to show anybody. I was going to um, say throw a dart at the at the movie, but shoot an arrow at it. Shoot, shoot an, an arrow. arrow at shoot at an arrow. 
Um, I mean, we've talked a lot about Tashiro Mifune uh, and just how amazing he is. And it is no surprise that the three Kurosawa films have him in it, uh, you know, in a starring role. They work together on 16 films, which is kind of crazy. Also, that wasn't even Kurosawa's most. I think the the main dude from Seven Samurai, they were together like 23 times or something wow. like that. But I mm. think we see Mifune the most, I guess. Like maybe he's just the most charismatic or dynamic. So mm. I kind of want to focus on these guys. We see them work together so much. And again, just kind of got me thinking about like, what are some other director actor duos um, that I don't know, have like had a great influence and work well together. And that just, we, we expect to see together. Um, Steven, I'm going to throw it to you first. What's one of your favorite director, actor duos? Yeah. Whenever anyone asks me this question, I immediately go to Jimmy Stewart and Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's just a really mm-hmm. powerful, powerful combo. Solid. So yeah. a bit of a gimmick cast because outside of Alfred Hitchcock films, Jimmy Stewart's the nice guy, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's saving the savings and loans place and crap like yeah. that. And then you put him into vertigo and he's got this weird psychosexual obsession with this woman. He thinks he accidentally <laughs> let kill. <laughs> he's trying to gaslight this another woman into becoming her. And it just plays <laughs> on your sort of your expectations versus what the film is. And Hitchcock and I assume Stewart, knew that and used that so well every time they collaborated. Yeah. It comes out, it's all of his best performances are his Hitchcock films. And and frankly, most of the best Hitchcock films have Jimmy Stewart in it. So I I, frank, I wish they had done more. That's the one I always go to because they're brilliant together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it's a great choice. Like we did uh, uh It's a Wonderful Life. Um and before that we did Vertigo and yeah, it's yeah, I wish they had done more stuff together as well. I'm sorry, Tyler, go ahead. No, I was just going to echo that same thing. Um, I, uh, I couldn't possibly agree more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart and, and Hitchcock working together is a lot of fun. Cause you know, I, I actually didn't know he was in vertigo until we watched it for the podcast here. And uh, like you were saying, I kind of knew him as just like America's dad or, mm-hmm. you know, America's grandpa, just like good old Ashuk's Jimmy Stewart. And so to watch him play this role where, you know, I wouldn't call him deranged, but you know, he's, he's going through some stuff and he's got, there's a little bit of darkness and, you know, like it was interesting to see him play that kind of, that kind of role where you're like, you sort of question him a little bit more than you normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw this, uh, when I saw this, um, posted on the, uh, the conversation sheet here, the first thing that popped in my head was uh, Scorsese and DiCaprio, which yeah. when I, when I got to thinking, I was like, it's interesting because Scorsese you could say that about like a number of actors with Scorsese, yeah. you know? Um, but for me, the one that sticks out is Scorsese and DiCaprio. I think of departed immediately, um, you know, shutter Island, those sorts of things, Wolf of wall street, the more recent stuff. Um, and so I, I think there's probably a better, a better uh, combo out there. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. I just can't think of it. So uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to stick with Scorsese and DiCaprio. I mean, solid choice. Like you said, you could, anyone from the Irishman, basically Scorsese, De Niro is yeah. classic Pesci. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think that's a, but yeah, the, the newer version of Scorsese with all the DiCaprio stuff has been solid. Um, Matt, what about you? I was, I was trying to think, I mean, I, I thought of a few different examples, but the one that I stuck with was the Linklater Ethan Hawke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, combo. I love this answer. Yeah. 
for for those of you who have, I mean, if you go back, we covered uh, the before trilogy, which isn't just one of the best trilogies we covered on the pod, but one of the best trilogies all of us have seen in our entire lives. Without a doubt. Including so, Steven. Including Steven. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> we were speaking no, for him. <laughs> no, but we're, uh, we're, we're big fans of, of that combo. Um, I think I saw today that Ethan Hawke expressed uh, a desire to work with him again, I which I'd that. be down for. So yeah. uh, it was on top of, top of my mind today. I think that's solid. Yeah. There are like, even all the directors that we've talked about in this episode, like Tarantino, Samuel Jackson, uh, Edgar Wright with um, Simon Pegg, like they've worked together a lot. The Coens, I mean, married Francis McDormand, you know, so like mm-hmm. they, they've definitely like been working together for a long time. Um, so many good choices. I do want to shout out. I'm going to cheat. I'm, I'm doing three just because why not? You know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's how it goes. Uh, my <laughs> favorite one that I want people to look into more if they haven't is Christopher guest and Fred Willard. Oh, if you haven't watched like best one. in show, like please go watch best in show. Oh yeah. It's a cameo, kind of a cameo role for Fred Willard, but my God, like, I know we've talked in here before about the influence per minute, like in a movie and Fred Willard and Besson show is like, yeah. he is so good <laughs> in that. I don't think I ever could get used to being probed and prodded. I, I told my proctologist once, Hey, why don't you take me out to dinner in a movie sometime? You know? Yes. Yes. Um, I remember you said that last yes, year. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think one of the bigger ones uh, that we've talked about a little bit, we've had quite a few people pick this person in their clubhouse uh, but Bill Murray and Wes Anderson, obviously, like mm-hmm. they work together a yeah. ton. I think they're great. Uh, the one that I want to pick, though, they have a very limited number of movies together, but I'm very excited about their future together. And that's Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan. Oh, um, yeah. Fruitvale Station, Creed and Black Panther. Only three movies that Coogler's directed. Michael B. Jordan was in all of them. That's a great pick, man. Um it's just like, I don't know, again, like for me, the three for three, I'm excited to see where it goes in the future. I love all those movies. I think they're great. Um, so, again, like kind of a limited amount of movies together, but just, you know, it gives me I'm most optimistic about that. I'm very excited to see where they go from here. But yeah. I think all of these choices are super awesome. But again, see best in show if you haven't. Well, I so when I said there was better picks out there for me. I realized the one that I had thought of earlier, but forgot to write down, but Wes Anderson and Bill Murray, I'm changing my yeah. answer. Officially. Do it. Make yeah. it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're yeah, it's solid from Rushmore on. Like they're always good together. I mean, speaking of good, it's time for us to head to the drive-in or Adam driver drive-in double feature. Uh, this is a segment sponsored by dear friend of the pod, Adam driver, uh, it's where we get to set up a double feature at the drive-in that he runs, and we get to pick the movie that we are pairing with today's movie, which is Throne of Blood. So you get to pick what you show and in what order you show it. Stephen, what is your double feature? For the double feature, I definitely start with Throne of Blood, and then I follow it up with another Kurosawa film, uh, The Hidden Fortress, which is one of nice. his lesser-known films, like in terms of the Kurosawa canon doesn't mm-hmm. come up a lot in conversation. You probably, if you've heard of it, it's a footnote that George Lucas credits it as an inspiration for Star Wars. Yeah. Which uh, is absolutely okay. true. There's a lot of Hidden Fortress baked into Star Wars. Okay. Uh, but I would pair it with this one because Throne of Blood is about as dark as Kurosawa goes. 
Uh, Hidden Fortress is about as fun adventure romp as he goes. Mm. So I think it's a good aftertaste, clean it up, leave the movie theater, drive away from the drive-in feeling a little bit happier. Nice. Um, nice. It, it's really a lot of fun. It's another beautifully shot film. Um, if you want to know where Princess Leia, why she's kind of got an attitude in A New Hope that disappears later, watch Hidden <laughs> Fortress. It comes from there because she's directly ripped off from the princess in that movie. Awesome. <laughs> And it is. It's truly one of those films that, for some reason, it gets left behind. I think it's got a Criterion release. Yeah. Nobody knows it's a great film, but give it a shot because you're going to walk away feeling a lot like you the first time you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. You're going to leave kind of that way because you just had a romp, an adventure, and the characters are so well written and so well acted in it. The Hidden Fortress would be my second. That's awesome. If we win and if we do another Kurosawa round, which I'm sure we will, that would be my pick because because of everything you said, you know, like knowing the influence that Lucas said that it had on Star Wars, I think he even had like pan wipes like in the movie and stuff like that, which he took over to Star Wars. But um, yeah, I I really want to see that movie. So somehow I'll work it into our schedule and make us watch it. But I think that's a great choice. Tyler, what's your double feature? Well, so I did an actual real-time double feature. Uh, I actually did a double feature. Uh, I watched Throne of Blood in the morning yesterday, and then I watched um, most of The Tragedy of Macbeth last night. Um, It got a little too late, and I realized I was up against it, so I went to bed, and I'm finishing it tonight. So technically, it's not a real double feature, but um, we can just pretend. So I would do exactly that. I would watch Throne of Blood first and watch Tragedy of Macbeth second. And the reason I would do it in that order, I actually enjoyed Throne of Blood more than I'm enjoying Tragedy of Macbeth so far. I like Tragedy of Macbeth. It's fine. I, mm-hmm. You know, it's but I had more fun with Throne of Blood. But thro- watching Throne of Blood helped me understand what the hell is happening in Tragedy of Macbeth. <laughs> you know, because they speak, they speak of that iambic pentameter. They, you know, yeah. it's very Shakespearean. And if I didn't know if I didn't have a primer on the what the story is beforehand I might be a little lost so I would recommend it doing it in that order just so you know what's going on but they're both beautifully shot black and white slow paced um I didn't I didn't mention earlier talking about no theater apparently I'm a fan of that style because I love throne of blood I love the mm-hmm. slow the slow pace of it I love the slow burn I loved all the long the long holding shots all that stuff Um, The way that Lady Macbeth moves very slowly and methodically. I thought that was really cool. So anyways, I'd go Throne of Blood first and then um, the other one. (laughs) Tragedy of Macbeth second. Yeah. (laughs) I I will say I did arguably the most research I've ever done for an episode uh, in that I read Macbeth (laughs) before this. Because the other pod, 24 Minutes of 824, we cover Tragedy of Macbeth. I was like, I feel like I want to kind of get a head start on it and read it first. And uh, the same reasons you said, Tyler, like, I'm glad I did because in watching it, I was like, man, I would be so fucking lost right now if I did yeah. not like if I hadn't written the one I was reading, like basically like broke down the words for me, you know, like scorched means slayed, like just kind of like translated it. So you kind of understood exactly what was going on. But I would do the same thing that you did. You know, if you're going to watch these two show throne of blood first to get like the idea of the story out there. So people aren't like too lost and yeah. hung up on, you know, all the, the words, you know, all those dumb words or whatever and tragic Macbeth. But <laughs> um, yeah, that's solid. Matt, what about you? Um, So I, you know, 
It's kind of been a theme for me this episode. I'm taking the Macbeth story to a galaxy far, far away. And I am going to start with Throne of Blood, uh, just because I feel like, I mean, that's a more direct adaptation of the Macbeth story. Um, And then I'm finishing it off with Star Wars Episode 3, which is George Lucas's sort of Macbeth story with these visions and trying to keep them from happening or trying Mm -hmm. to get them to happen and then screwing everything up and becoming bad in the process. It is interesting that, you know, there with the original trilogy, there's always the speculation on how Darth Vader becomes Darth Vader and how he becomes bad. And it just like, I mean, it makes sense that George Lucas would, you know, pine from or mine from, you know, the great Shakespeare to tell that story um, in a Macbethian sort of way. So that's what I would show. Honestly, all I want right now is Mifune is Darth Vader. I want that movie. Seriously, that'd be amazing. Him, like, watch him come back from all those arrows and just, oh, yeah, that'd be great. For me, as I've talked about before with every double feature, I tend to just like latch onto one thing that I liked about it and like want to repeat that. Um, I forget what we watched, but it's something with like a big flying animal. It's like, cool, never ending story. That's what I want to see again, more of that. Uh, this one is something that we've talked about a lot. It's really just Toshiro Mifune. Like, I just want more of him. Um, and I think my favorite Kurosawa film uh, is Rashomon, um, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, just a really good movie. Basically, you got four people telling like a story that's told from four different people's perspectives. Um, if you've seen The Last Duel, that's like, you know, kind of the uh, recent version of that. But Rashomon is awesome. Um, the other guy that I talked about earlier that worked with Kurosawa more often, Takashi Shimura, who was like our main dude in Seven Samurai. I think they're the ones that worked together like 20 something times. Um, a fantastic actor, but he's mm-hmm. also in Rashomon. So that's what I would do. I haven't really thought about the order because I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I guess I'll do, I'll keep with you guys. Let's do Throne of Blood first and I'll show Rashomon afterwards. Um, but super great movie. Uh, highly recommend it. So, um, now it is time for us to head to our Rushmore Mountain. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Uh, as we have talked about ad nauseum, this is the Macbeth story. This is a adaptation of the Shakespeare play. Um, I, there were some interesting facts that I found. The Guinness Book of Records lists 410 feature length film and TV versions of Shakespeare's plays. making him the most filmed author ever in any language. And as of June of 2020, IMDb lists Shakespeare as having writing credit on over 1500 films. Uh, The first of which was a film called King John from 1899. So the dude's got over 1500 writing credits in these stories. Like there are plenty of Shakespeare adaptations. What is the Shakespeare estate doing with all that money? What's going on? (laughs) Build a new globe theater, make it bigger. <laughs> um, so even though we have all these to choose from, I have a feeling we're going to have some repeats, but I yeah. just wanted us to talk about our four top Shakespeare adaptations in movies. Steven, as our guest, you're up first. What are your favorite four? Yeah, you may have noticed as you were doing your intro there, I was still editing this, uh, but I think I finally landed on the four I'm going to pick. Okay. Uh, so uh, the first uh, is probably the thing that really introduced me to Shakespeare, The Lion King. Lion yeah. King is a very 
thinly veiled Hamlet retelling. <laughs> um, it's a little different. Simba actually acts more like Prince Hal than he does like uh, Hamlet. But mm-hmm. that that that's still it's it's Hamlet. It's you know yeah. the rightful king gets displaced by his uncle who actually killed his father. He has to come back and claim his throne. Um, it ends a little happier than the typical Shakespeare. But yes, it's Disney, still dealing with those bigger themes that Shakespeare was so interested in about yeah. the rights of kingship and the natural order and how you, if you put bad into the world, you're going to get bad back out. That's what <laughs> of Shakespeare's plays are. Yes. Um, so, yeah, The Lion King uh, easily on that list. Uh, the one I just put back in because I'm an idiot and completely forgot it exists until just a moment hey, ago. Be nice to my uh, friend, Stephen. <laughs> I can't believe I almost left off the chimes at midnight. Um, it's basically a synthesis of the Henry ad, all those Henry, the whatever's smashed together. And it's around. It focuses on the Falstaff character played by Orson Welles, who also directed it. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's this weird mishmash. It's not an exact replica of any play, but you get to see Prince Hal grow up to become the King through the fool character huh. and, okay. um, it's orson wells using his portliness to his portly best <laughs> you know, he's nice and fat and sweaty for the whole thing <laughs> and it really pays off and it is one of the it's probably his best shot film um he's what his strength is as director uh he had an eye for interesting camera angles and he's just doing True. everything that he can you know he's digging holes to put the camera in for low shots he's hanging wires get high yeah. he, he's doing everything uh i can't say enough about the chimes at midnight okay um number three i put down this is the one i kind of just deleted and put back oh i put down the coriolanus uh it's weird that i'm going to recommend this film because it's a film that has gerard butler as an actor and okay Every other instance, if I saw Gerard Butler, I would do the appropriate thing and throw the <laughs> DVD out and spend vomiting <laughs> for having touched the DVD. So Mr. Butler, on. please like and subscribe. Mr. Butler, I know <laughs> you, Gerard. Uh, Ray Fine <laughs> plays the titular character of Coriolanus. Uh, it's one of those plays you never see, nobody ever talks about. Um, yeah. so brief synopsis, it's, it's Coriolanus is a Roman general. He wins a victory over the invading forces. He's like, everyone loves him. They're about to vote him in to uh, whatever you call it, the dictate, whatever the official title was at that time. And um, but he's got to do a little politic. He's got to go out and, you know, kiss some babies, shake some hands. And he just detests the Roman people. He hates them. Eventually, all the politic, all the politicking gets so bad that he explodes, tells everyone their babies are ugly, ends up fleeing Rome, joining the army he just beat and going up to reinvade Rome. And you know, okay. it's a question of loyalty and how rage is self-destructive. Again, it's Shakespeare. Put bad in, get bad out. Yeah. Uh, Ray Fiennes is incredible in it. And Jerry Butler, he's a good actor in it. I, I don't know why. Maybe <laughs> if he only spoke in early modern English, <laughs> in I am a contaminator, he would be a better actor. He can't sing. I, I've seen Phantom of the Opera. He destroyed that, but. He's really, really good in that version of Coriolanus. And I mean, like you say, broken clocks, right? Twice a day. So Jerry Butler was he he had a good performance. <laughs> we, we it was bound it. to happen eventually. I will say, like the duo of Brian Cox and Ray Fiennes, I think it's got to like yeah make up for whatever Jerry was doing. But it sounds like Jerry's also doing great. So this is this is awesome. 
maybe he just picks that or he just swings he did he, he needs to pick really swing better base to what he is i think <laughs> um i got one more right yeah i do yeah um oh for that i'm, I'm gonna go back to kurosawa and recommend ram nice. you never have a day and a half to sit down and watch a single film <laughs> make that film ran okay. it lasts, it's an adaptation of king lear and Ooh, it cool. is the best king lear you will ever see awesome um, okay just it, it i'm, I'm not going to spoil too much but there is a scene very close to the end there's been this blind monk who has been sort of the counselor for king lear throughout the king lear character obviously he's called something different mm-hmm. um he's the whole time he's telling them you know you need to go back be with your sons instead of daughters in this version you got to put things right there's, there's there's a cosmic order that we all have to put yeah. in and he likes to sleep on top of a roof uh, because it's cool. So he sleeps on top of the roof. So we see him there a couple of times. And towards the very end, we see him on the roof, like we're accustomed to see him. And he's got a scroll that he likes to carry. He's blind, but he carries a scroll that's a picture of Buddha in it. And in this climatic ending where everything's falling apart because it's Shakespeare, it's King Lear, the blind man on that thin roof drops his picture of Buddha. And it's just this beautiful expression of Kurosawa of a person, everything that they believe to be true has just abandoned them. Huh. And you realize that this image that you've been seeing throughout this film over and over of this guy sleeping on the roof, this very tranquil scene is incredibly dangerous. That's because he's blind. He's got no help. He's yeah. up too high and his world is falling apart. And that's just one of the many, many brilliant things in Ran. Um mm. That might be my favorite Kurosawa. Again, I have three or four that keep shuffling around. Yeah, but sure. uh, it's like six hours. I f- that's not how it feels like. <laughs> it's 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 worth it if you can okay. clear a day. Go and sit and watch Ran. You're you're going to thank me. I'm in. We sat through Barry Lyndon. I think we can do it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can all make it. Yeah, round two. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Matt, what about you? What what makes you rush more? Oh man, I gotta go. You you gotta go, Lion King. I mean, Lion King. Lion King was so good that it makes you think that maybe Shakespeare based Hamlet off of Lion King. <laughs> um, you can't prove traveling. he didn't. I I, it's true. Yeah, you never. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> just putting that out there in the universe. <laughs> let let me know what you think in the comments. Um, <laughs> Then uh, then I got to go Throne of Blood. Like I said, this is uh, by far my favorite adaptation of Macbeth. Um, similar to what Stephen just said about Rand being, you know, the best King Lear adaptation. I've, I've seen a lot of great Macbeth adaptations um, and I, I like the story a lot. And so Throne of Blood, it's got to be up there. Then I got to go with the Romeo and Juliet uh, by Baz with yeah. Leo and Claire Danes. I mean, I... Grew up mostly in the 90s, so it was, it was just there and awesome. <laughs> it was there. John sure was. John Leguizamo, or Leguizamo with his pistols, his, his tibble was just so cool. Yep. I was struggling trying to find a fourth that I really loved, so I, I put Warm Bodies. Uh, but I'm going to honorable mention Much Ado About Nothing. Not that it was a great movie, but just because it has Denzel and Keanu in it. And, uh, and I need to watch it again. So. Yep. Yeah. What else do you need? Solid duo. I think Warm Bodies is a great uh, unsung gem. I don't. That's one that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, but I, I really enjoyed that movie. I had a good I time with that. 
Tyler. Well, it fits the criteria because I've never seen it. So uh, much like our esteemed guest, Stephen, I forgot to do this until right before we introduced the segment. So I hurried and pulled up a list and I was browsing through there as I was trying to listen and, you know, be an active participant to this conversation. Um, So I was looking through lists. There wasn't a whole lot of stuff on there that uh, either A, that I had seen or B, that I remembered well enough to like stamp it onto a list. So this is uh, a little bit of recency bias, but I'm going to throw on Throne of Blood. I think it deserves to be on there, but uh, you yeah. know, I'm not I'm, I don't feel informed enough to really stamp it on there. But we'll say Throne of Blood, um, 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, I think it's a well-known pod favorite. Um, also a movie club favorite because they voted it for uh, the the recast that we just did. Shout out the movie club. Yeah. Shout out movie club. Um, Lion King everything you guys said about that already is more eloquent than anything I could say about it. Um, and in a podcast first, I'm going to do a preemptive Rushmore placement with my own, with my own private Idaho. Never seen it, but it's coming up on the podcast and I'm confident that I will at least like it. I've heard a lot about it and it's something I've wanted to see for a long time. Didn't know it was an adaptation, but it was on every list I looked at. So Apparently it is. Apparently it's good. And it's going on my list. Number four. This is a historic episode. Yeah. Big deal. Yeah. It's a big day. It'll be fun gonna, to know if it's going to stick around, but I'm sure it will. I would say we'll have the intern make a note right now so we can <laughs> come back to this on the my, my own private Idaho episode and see if it still holds up. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, honestly, like a lot of things, Tyler, like we have essentially the same list. Um, yeah. I often we'll say on here how much I really try to not repeat things, but if I'm true to myself, like all four of mine have already been mentioned with the movie we've been talking about tonight, throwing a blood easily works its way on there. 10 things I hate about you. Just one of the best, in my opinion, best rom-coms ever. I love that movie. Um, Lion King. I don't know what else you can add to that. <laughs> you know, it's just like it's yeah. Lion King. It's great. Uh, and then Matt, yeah, I'm with you. Oh, give me the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. Mm. That's a relatively recent movie to my life, but man, I, I loved what he was doing with it. Um, I, you, you just got to embrace what's going on there, but Jamie Kennedy, like you said, John Leguizamo, like everyone, I don't know. They're all there for the right movie, in my opinion. And that's what makes it work. So, uh, that's what I'm going with. So solid Rushmore's all around. Guys, this was a super fun episode. Steven, thank you yeah. very much yeah, for joining for us. On. This was a great conversation. I hope you had a good time. We loved having you here. Do you uh, want to let people know again about your pods and where they can find everybody? Sure. You can find me on the Pub Trivia Experience and more commonly on the Boozy Bracketology podcast. You'll be able to find those. Google Play, Apple, whatever, whatever podcatcher you use. We're on all of them now. Uh, if you want to check us out a little bit deeper, we do have Patreon. That's P-T-E-B-B, like Pub Trivia Experience Boozy Bracketology. Just go ahead and give us a look there. Uh, we've got merch, I've heard, but I've never seen anyone actually wear it or buy it. So <laughs> you might have a chance to be the very first if you're interested. Oh, hey. Hipster, you can do that for you. I like you know, it. Yeah, other than that, uh, that's that's what places I usually live on the internet. Perfect. I like your Patreon classes too. I think it's like wine, craft beer. I forget what the other twos are, but I, I like, I like that you guys have the different categories broken down like that. I think it works perfectly. We obviously, if you're listening to us, you know where you can find us. We're on all the podcast platforms, 
we will have the links for uh pub trivia experience and boozy bracketology in the episode so again please go follow them listen to their show um but yeah you can find us everywhere at three films pod or three films pod.com thank you for joining us on this episode next week we are going to wrap up our kurosawa round with matt's pick yojimbo which is i'm i'm super stoked to see that movie again so this will be a good one um yeah thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week bye everyone see ya She has really given him a thorough going over. Are all judges that thorough? I mean, yes, she looks yes. at the teeth. It's very important that all the attributes are examined. Uh, teeth, eyes, Runs ears, Ouch. gums. Am I seeing right? Where's she putting her hands now? Uh, she's just checking out the dog's uh, testicular area oh. to make sure <laughs> to make sure that uh, that everything is intact. Hate to go out on a date with Judge uh, Edie Franklin, have her judge me. That would be no fun.